what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the ACAST family. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of the show. Today is part three of the story of Saul Contreras, a man who spent over 19 years incarcerated in the state of Texas, convicted of the murder of his niece, who was only 22 months old at the time. A crime in which he confessed to, a confession he says was written by detectives, and a confession which he says was false. Initially, you would think about a false confession and say, why would someone say they did something when they didn't? And people just didn't believe it. But I think more time and time again now, we're seeing more and more cases that are becoming well-known and sort of, you know, household names. And you're seeing these things happen and you're going, oh my God, like people do actually suddenly start to change their story when they're under duress. Yes. I watch all those datelines in 2020s and they convince people that they did it. They didn't convince him that he did it because he knew he didn't do it, but they they beat him down quickly. Um, you know, if you cooperate, you'll get a better deal with the DA. If you cooperate, we'll get you a lower bond. If you cooperate, you'll get out Monday and sort this out. If you ask for an attorney, we can't say you cooperated. If you don't cooperate, the body can't be released for burial. And the one that got him to capitulate was, if you don't cooperate, we'll arrest your wife also, and those your kids will go to CPS and you'll never see them again. That's what he said, okay. Eventually, he agrees to sign the statement that they give him. And he says it's a statement that he never is able to read. I did not even get a chance to to read it. I glanced at it, but they they did not let me read it. They just told me to sign it. I had to sign it. And they kept saying that over and over until... Once detectives have their signed statement, they have what they need and formally charge him and place him under arrest for the murder of his niece. Before he's taken away to jail to be booked, detectives allow him to speak with his family, who are at the station. 
His wife Claudia is allowed into the room to see him. So from the interview room, they took me to one of the papers' offices, and uh, they told me I would get to speak to my family for a few minutes. Um, and as they were walking me over there, all the detectives were high-fiving each other, you know, and hollering and whooping. Um, and then when I walked into the to the to the room, they took a few minutes to go talk to my family first, and then they brought Claudia in. And the first thing she said was, "Why? Why I can't believe you?" And uh, well, you know that blood is thicker than water, so you can forget about me. And then she walked out, didn't give me a chance to say anything, explain anything, let her know. Look, they were threatening to put you away. They were threatening to take our kids away. They didn't let me give you a chance to. She didn't give you a chance to talk to her. Were she the, just walked out. Were you alone, or were police in there? There was a detective uh, at the door, and one I believe was sitting behind me. Did you and Claudia ever have any issues between you? None, no. So why do you think she would instantly side with her sister? I, I honestly don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I at the time I had no clue what was going on. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was lost at that time. I, I had no clue what was going on. I had no clue why she was reacting the way she was. As time has passed, I've, I've, I've realized that perhaps she knew what had happened that night. She knew what her and her sister maybe had planned. I don't know. I don't know what the what the deal is, but I, I think that combined with whatever the detectives were telling her and, and maybe threatened her, or, or I don't know, maybe that did it. I, I don't know, honestly. Did she ever seem to question it? She, uh, a couple of weeks afterwards, she questioned that decision of walking out and she actually came to the jail to talk to me and apologize for walking out and, and realized that it, it was a mistake. And she realized, she realized that, you know, there's no way I could have done that. Mm-hmm. She knows me. And, um, and it was, you know, at that time, it, it just, I, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I just, I was glad mm-hmm. that she was back. And I remember seeing in the file, many very loving letters she sent you in prison. Yes, yes. absolutely. She, she, she stayed with me maybe the first couple of years, two years maybe. And after that, you know, she went her separate way. And has never done anything since to try to help you? Um, no, no. She, she wrote a few letters afterwards just letting me know that she uh, was in a situation she did not want to be in, but uh, she couldn't get out of and you know, I told her I would be praying for her and offered help any time she needed, but that was it. But what about an attorney? As we know, Sowell's been questioned multiple times over the course of the past 48-hour period. Not only has he been questioned, but he's been interrogated to the point that he has now signed a statement confessing to punching his niece four times in the abdomen, all without any legal representation even though Sowell says on many occasions he did ask to speak with an attorney. However, now under arrest for murder, he's eventually assigned a public defender. Uh, I did not get to speak with an attorney through the whole process before my arrest. It wasn't until, I think, two days after I was already arrested and they had uh, assigned me a public defender. So it was probably about the second day after I was arrested that somebody from the public defender's office came to talk to me. I did Um, ask for an attorney during the interview and... They just dismissed it and said that was not going to happen. That was it. So in that first talk with the public defenders, did you all discuss the threats made by the officers? Yes, we did. We did. 
everything that they had done, how they took turns badgering me and just threatening me and threatening to take my, my kids away, threatening to put my, my wife away for life, and, and uh, even Susanna putting her away for life. Uh, and, and it just kept going on and on and on until I finally just told you know what, what you know, they, they, they came up with a statement, mm-hmm. and I said, yeah, whatever, if that's what you believe, then that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. I just, because I knew that I'm innocent and I figured, We'll get this figured out. We'll get this square away and taken care of, and they'll know I'm innocent, and I'll, I'll be going home. Okay. And did you discuss the statement that you signed, the second I statement? Did, uh, I, I did not remember all the details that they had wrote on there. I just told them that they, that they had made me sign a, a statement that they came up with. And that was that was basically it. Saul is a man with no criminal history, no history of violence or aggression, and certainly no prison time. But now he is off to jail. In America, when you're arrested for a crime, you're placed in county jail until such time as you're taken to court or you post bond. This can take some time to get through the system. For Saul, it took a very long time. We actually waited for two and a half years. And why was that? It was very strange because the first assistant DA that had the case was very eager to have this trial. She was... uh, very adamant about me being guilty and uh, at one point during one of the pretrial hearings she actually went up to my mom and said we are so excited because we're seeking the death penalty and my mom just about fell out I mean she was devastated my family had to take her to the hospital and my attorneys went and talked to the judge and talked to the, the main DA and explained to, to them what she had done and she apologized she, she, she didn't realize that was my mom that she was talking to or so she said and so she she got in a little trouble for that but then she also decided she wanted to retire and then come back into the the da's office and so they had to give you know she 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 realized she did not have any evidence so she decided to pull out of the case and so they assigned the case to a second assistant da and that assistant da uh, read it and said no i do not want this trial so they gave it to a third assistant da who immediately said, you know, no, I looked through it and there's nothing there, so I don't want this. And so they gave it to a fourth assistant DA who said, you know what, I'll take it to trial. Two and a half years, Saul sits in a county jail accused of murder, but having not been to court. So the question, as always, is why did he not post bond? Well, it's a simple fact that he couldn't afford it. And I'd be willing to bet there's not many people who would be able to afford Saul's bond. Uh, by this time, you know, so much time had passed by. Uh, my attorneys were also trying to, you know, get all the information that they needed. You know, they did all their investigation. And we had plenty of proof uh, as far as my innocence, uh, which they wanted to present. Uh, and that's why, that's why it took so long. It took two and a half years, which, by the way, I sat in the county jail this whole time because... One of the judges had set my bail at uh, 1.5 million. Eventually, a trial date is set, and he says the courtroom was filled with supporters. My entire family was there. I had family fly down from Chicago, from Arizona, California, from Colorado. I had my employers were there, my bosses were there, my coworkers, friends, family. Uh, the entire courtroom was filled with with people that were supporting me. There's even bailiffs from other courts that are supporting me. 
So the question is, what is Saul's defence? What angle are his attorneys going to take after he's already signed a statement confessing to striking Jasmine in the stomach four times? Well, as we know, as soon as Saul meets with his attorneys, he tells them about the coerced statement and that he did not say or do any of what was said in it. So, of course, his defence will investigate this during trial. But they also want to offer the jury another possible suspect. Someone else who may have in fact inflicted injuries on Jasmine that could have resulted in her passing. This suspect? Saul's sister-in-law. When I first met her, she was kind of standoffish a little bit, but she wasn't unfriendly, I guess you should say. She was kind of friendly. Uh, She wasn't too bad um, at first. And then I started getting to know her a little bit. I, I, I realized she was involved in some things that you know, her family, her sister wasn't happy about, uh, but yeah, you know, we try to be supportive with her, but she got in trouble with some things and we would try to help her out. Were the actual reports made against her in relation to how she treated the kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there were, there was, uh, some neighbors of hers that had reported it to CPS and CPS had gone a couple of times and investigated, uh, nothing really came out of it. Um, uh, but yeah, there were, so there were, of, of some, some reports, not only from the neighbors, but also from the daycare centers that the kids were, would go to. So Susanna, Jasmine's mother and Saul's sister-in-law, would be placed on the stand as a witness and spoke of how she would ask Saul to take care of her children on a number of occasions. There had never been any issue in the past with him disciplining her children or any aggression towards them in any way. She even says that she believes that her sister's children, Saul's stepkids, would not be as good a kids as they are without Saul's influence, as she states her sister was not a great mother. She would be questioned on the stand about the day and evening's events, and Saul's defence attorney will bring up the fact that when police first asked her how she would say that Jasmine may have got the injuries that she sustained, she would suggest that Jasmine may have fallen down the stairs as she had no reason to suspect Saul would have hurt Jasmine in any way. The defence indicated to the judge in the courtroom that they now wanted to explore Susanna's past record of violence with witnesses. It's important to point out that she had never been officially convicted of any crimes. However, the defence, as we said, wanted to offer the jury an alternative possibility in this case. The possibility of Susanna causing injuries to Jasmine that may have resulted in her passing. They said, and I quote, Our defence is that this is a pattern of violence, making her the guilty party. Of course, the prosecution then rises with their objection, stating, and I quote, There is no mum is a bad person defence in the law. Essentially saying that just because she may have not been a great mother is no defence for someone on trial for murder. Sowell's defence would come back with the following. The Supreme Court says that if our defence is that a third person did it, we can present that defence. The judge's response? That's it. Denied. Don't go there. So, Sowell's attorneys, who wanted to place witnesses on the stand to testify to the fact of Susanna's past violence, has been denied by the judge.
to, but the judge said that the third person was not involved or was not on trial. Mm. That there was no third party involved in the trial at this time. So she did not allow us to present any evidence against that person. However, my attorneys did use the bill of exceptions and we brought up several witnesses that testified uh, to comments that uh, that this third person, had, this other person had, had made. Uh, also, uh, just owners of several different daycares and daycare workers that had noticed a pattern with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, that there was always bruises, there was always the kids were kind of afraid of her. Um, they also testified that when they would call her, she would not go pick them up, so they would end up having to call me, and I would go pick the kids up and take care of them, and they would run towards me whenever they would see me and jump with, jump at me and hug me, and um, which was totally opposite of what they would do when she, when she would, Susana would pick them up. As Sal mentions there, his attorneys file a bill of exceptions. This is a formal written document in which a party objects to a judge's decision or relevant evidence at trial. So they are allowed to have certain people testify or certain evidence presented and to be placed on the record. However, this is for future appeals to show that they had concerns. And the jury during this time is removed from the courtroom while the evidence is presented into record. So the jury who will make the ultimate decision of guilty or innocent are not allowed to hear any of the evidence. Saul's sister remembers this from the trial. He was really, really upset. He was really sad. He was really, really sad. You can tell from his face that he was horrible. Really a lot of sadness in there. And it was a horrible trial. It was so weird that every time it was a witness to talk against Susanna that Josh told the, the, the jurors to go outside. And so they didn't heard what people were saying against Susanna. I think it was really unfair. I remember that. And I remember I used to get upset. And one of the times I got upset and I got out, you know, from the courtroom. And I went outside and cried because I said, it's not fair. It's not fair what they're doing. And the lawyers that were like trying, you know, to to fight that, but they didn't let him. So although the jury does not get to hear it, it's there, written in the statements. Multiple women from Saul's sister-in-law's family would get up on the stand to testify regarding her temperament around the children and themselves. Yes, uh, her older sister, Marisa, and uh, her niece, Michelle both testified. At one point, um, Michelle, who's, who was 16 at the time, it was her niece, she told uh, my attorneys um, that she was afraid to testify because she had made several threats to her already outside the courtroom. In fact, at one point, while they were about to go into the courtroom, Susana passed by them and uh, did the little knife through the throat uh, sign to verify her. Um, however, she did testify, and one of the things that she said was that Jasmine, on that night of the Thanksgiving party at their house, at Marisa's house, had been throwing herself on the ground, you know, grabbing her abdomen. Uh, she was very fuzzy, very, and, and every time that Susana would try to get her, she would pull away and, and run from her. Marisa also testified to that. She, she also testified that she was uh, very fuzzy and that she would not uh, go near her mom. Uh, did Claudia testify? 
Claudia, Claudia, she she also testified um, that um, of her of Susana's violence. You know how she was violent towards the kids, as she always mistreated them, hit them, used all kinds of profanity towards them. She also testified that uh, Susana had actually beat Claudia up. She gave her a really bad black eye at one point, uh, and they all testified to her violence. Uh, both Michelle and, and Marisa did too. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, more testimony is presented in Saul's defence that was again given while the jury was removed from the courtroom. But your attorneys did take his opinion in a bill of exception, correct? Yes, they did, but the jury never got to hear it, yes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, other than members of the family getting up and testifying for the defence, there were also a number of different expert witnesses that would testify on behalf of Saul. Saul's defence brought in Professor Robert J. Offshay. He testified in regards to false confessions and how police interrogation practices can result in these false confessions. Prior to the jury being brought in to hear from Professor Offshay, the prosecutor is given the opportunity to find out just what the professor would be testifying to on the stand, and he does some preliminary questioning. Now, I have all these trial transcripts, and I would love to bring you the entire thing because it is truly fascinating. But to read the entire transcripts would be take far too long. What I will bring you is a short excerpt from this preliminary questioning to show how the prosecutor is trying to attempt to get this expert's opinion on the specifics of this case removed from trial. The following is a reenactment taken from actual court transcripts. 
Right, so you're going to make some application, is that correct? I'm going to analyse the facts of this interrogation in light of what's known about police interrogation methods. Okay, and at some point in time, someone's going to ask you to come up with some conclusions, is that correct? Quite possibly. Okay, and these conclusions are going to be something like someone is telling the truth and someone is not. Isn't that correct? No, it's not. Okay, well, then forgive me because then I don't understand the value of what you're doing at all. I'm sorry, is there a question there? Yeah. (coughs) What is it that you're going to do ultimately? I'm going to help educate this jury as to how police interrogation works. I'm going to help educate this jury as to how to analyse what's been testified to as to what happened in the interrogation. So the jury can then decide what weight to give the statement that was elected. That's the jury's job. I'm not here to tell the jury that this is a true or false confession. So you're going to tell the jury how to decide what the truth is, is that correct? I'm going to tell the jury how to understand the interrogation process and how to evaluate what's been testified to as to what happened in the interrogation, and they'll make their decision about how to evaluate it. Okay, but that's not what I asked you. I said, what you're actually going to do is tell the jury how to tell the truth, isn't it? No. Okay, and again, I don't understand your function. You're going to get up here and tell the jury, look, if this happened or that happened, it's not likely this is to be believed. Or, if this was used or that was used, this makes it less or more likely to believe a person. Isn't that what you're going to do? No, I'm going to talk about interrogation methods, about what or how interrogation works, and about those things that, if present in an interrogation, can lead to an unreliable statement. So, in fact, what you're going to try to do is tell this jury how to tell the truth? No, I'm going to tell the jury how to understand interrogation and how to evaluate the testimony about it. Right, how to evaluate it for the truth. Isn't that correct? For who's telling the truth? Yes. Yes? Or or for the truth of a confession? Either one. Well, the jury has to decide who's telling the truth since the facts of the interrogation are in dispute. I'm not here to tell them who's telling the truth. Okay, but we're not getting around the fact that that's what you're going to do is tell them how to evaluate the truth in a confession. I'm going to educate them about how interrogation works so that they can do their job better. This would continue on for some time, with the prosecutor arguing that jury does not need someone to tell them what the truth is. They've heard from the parties involved, detectives and the defendant, and they don't need someone to tell them what the truth is. They can decide that for themselves. The defence continues to argue the importance of the testimony, And this continues till eventually the judge allows the jury to be brought into the courtroom under the following precaution. This issue has been going on since November of last year. I remember the DA's office giving to the public defender's office two big boxes of interrogation methods. And you all need to understand that this court allowed the statement of Mr Contreras to come in. And he has a right to present his defence. So this is a condition that this gentleman will testify. He can testify as to the general basis of interrogation methods. Obviously, we know they exist. We know they existed in this case. We know it exists for the police department. We all tendered over those documents. But Mr Contreras' defence, I will tell you, he will not testify as to the veracity of any statement. He will not testify as to the voluntariness of any statement. And he will also not testify as to any truth or false confession. Are you all clear on my conditions? So the jury returns and it isn't long before the prosecution objects 
many times over as to the defence's questioning of the professor and his responses. The jury is again removed from the courtroom. The defence, again warned to keep the questioning general and not related to Saul's specific statement and account of his interrogation. What Professor Offshay is able to talk about is things like the read technique. Here's Jane from Proclaim Justice. They do this read technique, and we do know that these cops had just, uh, detectives had just, you know, brushed up on their read technique. And, you know, in Saul, they found somebody that was just not the strength to stand up to them. The re-technique is used widely across the United States and it has many steps involved in it in order to help a detective get a confession. One of these steps is direct confrontation. This can happen at any time after the interrogation starts. It can be one of the first things that occur or it can happen hours into the interrogation. This is where detectives will inform the suspect that they have unequivocal evidence that they committed the crime. Another step is shifting the blame, or what they call theme development. This is where the officer creates a narrative that allows the suspect to begin to admit some guilt, even if the narrative isn't exactly accurate. So, for instance, a detective might say something like, well, you don't seem like a killer, but maybe you were pushed to breaking point. I get it. Man, sometimes you just want the crime to stop. Did you feel that way? Interrogators also need to handle denials that come from the suspect. Now, what an officer doesn't want is a suspect gaining enough confidence to continue to deny any accusations. So they need to address these. The officer needs to swiftly and firmly dismiss any suggestions of denial from the suspect and discourage them from any more denials. These, as well as other steps and the environment that you place a person in, is all supposed to help officers get a confession. So it's important to state that the interrogation part of the re-technique is apparently only supposed to occur when the investigator is reasonably certain of a suspect's guilt. And of course, that is completely up to their own discretion. As the questioning of Professor Offshay continues, the prosecutor then asks the professor, as someone who is well-versed in the techniques of false confessions, does he believe that he could himself make the prosecutor admit to killing this child? To which the professor says, it's very possible. The prosecutor then replies, okay, let's go. Tell me how you would do it. The back and forth is again quite incredible. And what I will say from reading the court transcripts is, this prosecutor in this case is extremely good at what he does. During the actual trial, they did not allow him to, uh, they did not allow him to give his his expert witness testimony. So what did he, what did they allow him to tell the jury? Basically, they allowed him to say uh, that the police do do these type of things Mm -hmm. uh, and the procedure that is used, but of course that was objected to. Um, And so they did not allow him to give his his, uh, opinion as as an expert witness. Your attorneys did take his opinion in a bill of exception, correct? Yes, they did, but the jury never got to hear it, yes. The professor would state that, of course, as the interrogation itself was not recorded, he can only go by the account of Saul of what happened. But he concludes that if this is what happened, then it is his opinion that these factors could cause someone to decide 
to falsely confess. Now, do we know whether or not the police or the detectives have um, said that they, that's what they said or is this just the account from Saul? This is just the account from Saul. No, they said nothing. They didn't, they didn't do anything. They denied anything. Again, none of the interrogation, as we know, was recorded at all. No video or audio. The only evidence that we have that Saul confessed to punching Jasmine four times in the abdomen is what's written in a typed-up statement. A statement that was typed up by Detective Aguirre. He would testify on the stand that Saul was the one that offered up the information, of course, regarding the four strikes to the abdomen. And that when finally he was made aware that the medical examiner's report stated there were four bruises to the abdomen, it, of course, all matched. Now, Detective Aguirre would be cross-examined by Saul's defence attorney on the stand regarding how much he knew of the autopsy prior to taking Saul's second statement. So he, you know, he, he was telling whatever he said happened. Uh, and so my attorney started asking them, you know, well, how did you know about the, you know, the amount of bruises and, and this? Had you had any notification from your supervisor who was at the autopsy? And he, he told them no. Uh, this was volunteer information from Mr. Contreras. He's the one that told us that there was four uh, strikes to the abdomen. He said uh, he had no notification of that prior to, to you know, what he said that I said, which I did not say that at all. But then that, once he stepped down, then they, they, they cross-examined his supervisor, who was at the person at the autopsy. And they asked him, at any point after you found out about the the reports of the autopsy, you know, about the bruises, did you contact Detective Aguirre and inform him of the, the four bruises? Of course, uh, his supervisor said, yes, I did call him and tell him there was four bruises to the abdomen, which meant there was four blows to the abdomen. You have one minute remaining. Coming up, we'll look more closely at the officers involved in the investigation as Saul's defence attorney pushes one of the detectives about the extreme lack of any recording of the interrogation. And it would appear that this wasn't the first case where claims of coercion had made their way into the courtroom. Do we know anything about these particular detectives and whether this was the, kind of their MO? There have been other cases where people, where they have been um, cited for, you know, interrogation. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.